I want to tell you the story of a man named Jim, Jim Davis. He was a man who worked in a small supermarket and was somebody who absolutely loved his job. In fact, he prided himself on his customer service skills. Uh, he was uber conscientious. But Jim was a man who had one pet hate in life. He loathed out-of-control children and parents who persistently shouted at their children but did nothing to correct their obnoxious behavior. And one evening, Jim was checking out a customer who had a trolley full of shopping, and whilst he was busy scanning the items, a a child behind him began screaming really loudly. And then an angry man responded by shouting, Get down! Get down! Oh, here we go again, Jim thought to himself, another terrible parent. And without bothering to look up, he continued scanning his own customer's shopping. And as he moved the groceries past the scanner, the child behind him was continuing to, uh, to, was now crying. And again, he heard the man yelling, get down, get down. Well, sheesh, Jim thought. Talk about poor parenting. Here's a guy who really is a lost cause. So he kept on scanning the groceries without looking up. And then finally, finishing the customer's trolley, Jim looked up and said, that will be 49 pounds and 53 pence, please, madam. And he saw no one. He looked around and he noticed that everyone, including his customer, was lying face down on the floor and he turned just in time to see a gunman uh, leaving the store. Another cashier behind him, still lying on the floor, calmly said, Jim, the second time you heard get down, his gun was actually pointed at your head. (laughs) Well, Jim, of course, that day made an an important choice. He chose to ignore a clear command to act in a particular way and, in fact, he was oblivious that there was even a problem around him. Had he have discovered the reality of his situation, I guess he'd have been lying on the floor just like everybody else was. Well, this morning we kick off a new teaching series. It's a four-week series that will take us through the month of September. And it's going to take us as a, a, in a deep dive into some of the, the therefore statements that are captured in Romans chapter 8 twice, and also a therefore statement that's captured in Romans chapter 12. Now, of course, whenever you see the word therefore, your task is to try and work out what it's there for, which normally demands understanding everything that's been said prior to the therefore that you're reading about. So today, that's our task. We're going to try and set the context for all that's to follow in the weeks ahead as we get into Romans 8 and as we get into, (coughs) excuse me, that wasn't very pleasant, Romans chapter 12. Now, we're going to today look into Romans chapter 7, which becomes, is the chapter that comes before our, our therefore in Romans chapter 8 next week. And Romans chapter 7 is a confusing, a kind of perplexing text in Scripture. And in Romans chapter 7, you discover that internal struggle that happens within every single one of us without exception. There's a struggle that every single one of us can relate to. It's a struggle that goes on. In fact, it's a battle that goes on between our sinful nature on the one hand and our desire to live according to the will of God on the other. Do you know what I mean by that? That feeling of being torn between one way and another. Of course, the trouble is, if your life's anything like mine, is we often choose the wrong way over the way we know to be right. Now, maybe that isn't a wrestle for you this morning. I'm really pleased for you. Um, And if it isn't a wrestle for you, can you please sell your book? And did I mention we've got a build project that needs funding? If you ever find the secret to overcome this problem, you write the book, you'll get very, very rich. Now, of course, as Christians, we know that we're new creations from the very moment we come to faith in Jesus. Haven't we celebrated that over the last three weeks with three baptisms? 
We know that the very moment we become Christians, we have freedom in Christ, and yet somehow we still find ourselves shackled to that old domineering mate called sin. But I wonder what is sin? You see, boiled down to its most basic ingredient, sin is essentially not doing or saying or thinking what is right. Sin is anything that you or I do or say or think that goes against what God wants. <coughs> Excuse me, I've had a cold this week. Too much singing. You see, sin is inherently selfish. Sin is self-centered, it's self-serving, and maybe that's the reason why the word sin has got the letter I smack bang in the middle of it. Richard Dawkins, who was scientifically describing something, describes what we theologically understand sin to be. He described it as being the selfish gene. Here's a quote. He said, we're survival machines, robot vehicles, blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. Now, if ever you felt uh, like your struggle with sin uh, is, is difficult, well, maybe the, the way to think about it is to think about eating chocolate. Do you ever struggle over chocolate? Let's be really specific this morning. Let's talk about Kay and her issues with Maltesers. <laughs> you know you shouldn't, but when you see that chocolate bar, those Maltesers, it's ever so tempting. Every time we have that wrestle, it's a little bit like having our own personal Romans 7 verse 19 moment. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing, especially when there's a box of Maltesers. <coughs> in short, as you're hearing in just a second, in Romans chapter 7, Paul describes sin as a doo-doo problem. As a doo-doo problem. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 19, he says the same thing twice. The good I want to do, I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do, I do do. The doo-doo verse describing the doo-doo problem, which I realize is a very graphic way, but perhaps a brilliant way to describe what sin is. <coughs> Excuse me. I wonder if you've ever taken the time to take your sin seriously. I mean, really seriously, to actually wrestle with the problem of sin. If ever you've done that in your life, then I guess like the Apostle Paul, you'll find that it's an issue which is exasperating. In fact, it's utterly frustrating. Listen to how Paul describes his own sin in Romans chapter 7. This is from verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. That in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at, wor at work in me, waging, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, he concludes. Who will rescue me from this body which is subject to death? You see, as Paul is seriously wrestling with the problem of his sin here, in verse 24, he kind of builds up to this profound crescendo moment of realization and surrender, and he cries out, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? As he's crying out, you can almost hear his pain. Look, I've tried everything and nothing is helping. I'm at the end of my rope. And what's his conclusion? His conclusion is, I am such a wretched man. Now, I don't know about you, but I find all this strangely reassuring. Whenever I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of a giant of the Christian faith. I think of somebody who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. 
I think of, a, of an authoritative leader, a, a theologically thinking genius. I think of somebody who was one of the greatest apostles who has ever lived, and yet here we find a man who considered himself and described himself as being the greatest of all sinners. In fact, he went so far as to say, I am a wretched man. If you literally translate wretched man, it means miserable, unhappy, and pitiable. Does anyone else know any wretched men? Some of us. You see, sin has made Paul, as he thinks about his sin here, a low-life misery, a wretched man. And as I've been preparing for this this week and thinking about this theme, I've been thinking to myself, have I ever got to that broken place in my life about my sin? Have I ever thought about my sin so deeply that it's grieved me? I'm not sure I have. We often say there's a brave prayer you can pray, Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. And there's a sense here in which Paul has done exactly that. He's prayed, Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. And he finds himself miserable and wretched as he discovers the state of his sin life. You see, for Paul, he understood there's this massive uh, misalignment between my walk and my talk. And as we discover in Romans chapter 7 today, he's absolutely exasperated at the reality of the sin trap that he keeps on falling into, no matter how much good he tries to do. Sin just keeps on sabotaging his best intentions. I wonder if you can relate to his problem. I know I can. But there is good news, and cling on to this. Paul concludes Romans chapter 7, having just expressed his utter frustration at the reality of his life, by saying there is rescue from this misery. <coughs> Verse 25, what a wretched man am I, but, he says, but thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul concludes, discovering the wretchedness of the state of his life, he says, thank God that Jesus can and does and has done something about our sin problem. When we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God comes to live within us and the Holy Spirit empowers us and makes it possible, albeit imperfectly in these perishable bodies, to overcome the don'ts of sin and to be guided in the do's of righteousness. And as we get into Romans chapter 8 next weekend, we're going to discover the solution to the problem that Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 7. Now cling on to this and don't miss it. Here's the good news again. God has done something about the problem of sin. He doesn't just identify the problem, but he actually does something about it. Now I wish our children would take the same approach when it comes to their bedrooms. Dad, there's a terrible problem. My room is a tip. My response, then tidy it. Now the solution is obvious, and yet so often they seem powerless to resolve the problem they've identified, and they don't seem to be able to do it for themselves. Now, I guess the temptation for us might be to skip over the problem. We don't like problems. Let's move on from the problems captured in Romans 7, and let's get straight to the solution in Romans chapter 8. But here's the thing. The greater our grasp of the problem, as it's described in Romans 7, the greater our appreciation of all that Jesus has done for us, as it's described in Romans chapter 8. So let's jump back to the very beginning of Romans chapter 7, or at least seven verses in, and we'll discover why Paul was feeling so wretched about himself. And the first thing that Paul describes is what I'm calling the dilemma of the law. Paul recognizes that as a Christian, he's not bound by the written code for living anymore, but instead he's bound by the spirit being at work within his life, and he doesn't need to follow these external rules or regulations anymore. This is what he says. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin is had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really is if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. (coughs) But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, says Paul. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, uh, that, so, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, in a really very complicated kind of a way, Paul is addressing the role of the law or the written code, as we might understand it, in our lives. He's arguing, look, the law itself is not actually sinful, but rather the law reveals our sinful nature. To understand this as a metaphor, perhaps the law serves as a mirror that when we look into that mirror, it reflects back to us our inability to perfectly obey that law. The law brings about that sense of awareness of our sin. It helps us realize our need for the Savior. Now, in a really complicated kind of a way, I think Paul's point here is, look, The whole point of the law, the exposing nature of the law, is that it ought to drive us into the rescuing arms of Jesus. As we contrast our lives to the law, it ought to make us recognize that we have a need for a savior. And then Paul goes on and he tries to articulate the struggle that he's daily experiencing within. Now, I want to give you a challenge as I read this, is to listen to how many times he uses the word do or does, and you'll then discover why sin is a do-do problem. Let's read from uh, verse 14. Hold tight. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For uh, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I, carry it, um, but, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that makes me do it. Did you count them? There are at least 23 do's or does's in just seven verses of Scripture. Now, no one in their right mind would would write all of that stuff in such a confusing, complicated way. But in a sense, Paul is trying to articulate that which is unarticulatable, if that makes any sense. Paul here is trying to say, look, I need to confess I've got a personal struggle, and my personal struggle is with sin. He's acknowledging that tension between his desire on the one hand to do that which is good, but his tendency to do the very thing that he absolutely hates. Now, I think it's worth reminding us at this point that Paul is not describing, as he says all of this, the life of an unbeliever. 
Paul is not describing, as he's saying all of this, an immature or a backslidden Christian. He's describing the reality of his own life, a leader in the life of the church. And he's saying, look, guys, you need to hear and understand, I struggle with sin. The good I don't want to do, I do do. And the evil I don't want to do, I do do. A lot of do do. And you know, as I read Romans chapter 7, I'm so grateful that Paul breaks out of his normal kind of logic and clarity here and kind of uses all these do's and does's because actually what he's describing here is a description of my own personal life. And I know from the encounters I have on a daily basis as a church minister, what Paul is describing here is a description of our reality that we share together as a church community. The Christian life can be hard. The Christian life can be very messy. It can be so challenging. And yet somewhere in the sea of our sin, in the mess, in this tension we find ourselves walking in of knowing that we're a free people, knowing that Christ has saved us, and yet still we wrestle with our sinfulness, in the sea of all that sin, God is working to complete the good work that he has begun in us. And miraculously, his grace is sufficient. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see, if we were to really seriously wrestle with our sin and the problem of our sin before God, and verse 25 did not come in Romans chapter 7, we'd feel wretched. More than wretched, we'd actually get to the point of feeling there is nothing worth living for. But Paul doesn't end in that place in verse 24. He goes on to say that Jesus has done something about the problem of our sin. That's his conclusion at the very end of Romans chapter 7. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the verse that comes before the therefore that we're going to get to in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 next weekend. Therefore... Because my sin is so bad, Romans 7 verses 1 to 24, and because God's grace is so sufficient because he's done something about the problem, verse 25 of Romans 7, there is Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you see how beautiful Romans 8 verse 1 looks when it sits within the context of the wretchedness of our sin, verses 1 to 24, but the reality that Jesus has done something about that sin by dying on the cross. I'm so grateful that Jesus went to the cross. Without the death of Christ, without him conquering death and sin, life is hopeless. It's more than miserable, it's hopeless. And yet we have a hope because of Jesus And next week, as we get into it, Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to explode with excitement as he gets from the therefore and goes in to talk about our freedom in Christ and the fact that we're a people who live without condemnation. The do's and the don'ts of Romans chapter 7, they remind us of our human frailty. And as I've read this text this week, I've just been reminded of my desperate need for a saviour. And didn't we recognise that when we came to the table this morning? that Jesus' body was broken. Why? Because of my sin. A sin that really offends God and breaks my relationship with God. And yet God has done something about it. As we came to the table this morning, we, we took the wine reminding us of Christ's blood shed. Why? Because of my sin. And it reminds us of this incredible truth that God has done something about the problem of sin. 
Your way is better. We sang out in a song earlier on. I know that full well. His way is better. And yet so often I choose my way over his way. But, says Paul, it's okay. Verse 25. God has done something about the sin problem. Therefore, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you need to hear that truth this morning. There is no condemnation for you because of your sin if you are in Christ Jesus. God has done something about it. Thanks be to God who delivers me, who delivers you through Christ Jesus, our Lord.